given and giving, God's perfect perspective on possessions. Let's begin with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the things that you have given to us. As we recognize today the struggle that can go on within, we ask you for your strength. We ask that you would give us the perspective that helps us understand how to fight the good fight of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Possessions, God's perfect perspective. As you think about the various challenges that people can face in life, and then you look at Amazon or a bookstore, and you go down the list of all of the different things that have been written to help people address issues that they're facing in life, you might have fly into your head images of self-help books on this or that or this or that. When you think about self-help books, there's kind of a thread that seems to flow through most of them. Like the secret of self-help. What would you say are kind of the consistent pieces to a self-help book, whatever the particular issue that they're trying to address? You might say, well, the first thing they talk about is what the problem is. There needs to be an acknowledgement of the issue. And then they hold out before you what the solution would look like. And now you're very attracted to getting to that solution. And then the book talks about the steps that fall in between the two. Problem, solution, the steps in between to get you to the solution. And another thing that is often there is an encouragement that you have the ability to achieve it. They give you the confidence that as self, you are capable of getting to that place where you want to get. When we think about money and we recognize that God has given us a gift and we're thinking, all right, like, does God want me to give my money to him? And can feel like a, a negative thing to some degree. But if you think about the concept of problem and solution and the steps in the middle, you might be thinking, okay, so that's what this is, that we've got to figure out what the steps are in the middle, and then I can get to the place where I want to get with regard to my handling of my personal possessions. And yet, if you were to think about self-help books and how often it turns out, like, how successful do you think self-help books are? I suppose one answer might be, well, they must not be very successful because they keep getting written. Or you might say, well, that's the sign that there's a lot of problems that people face in their lives and there needs to be a lot of self-help books, right? Whatever the reason for lots of them, the reality is that often there's a maybe rush of success and focus, but then it kind of drifts. Well, it doesn't turn out to be a permanent change. And that becomes such an important reality as we think about what we long to be as the children of God when it comes to our money. Humans do not have the power to make the change that God pictures for us. To imagine that we do would be to maybe have a, a rush of positivity and ending up in an apparently good place, but this is much more than what humans are capable of taking on, what we are going to be talking about today is a battle. And it is a lifelong battle. 
And it is one where we need to understand where is the victory. From where comes the ability to take on the enemy that we need to fight. We're going to start off in 1 Timothy chapter 6. There are a number of places in the Bible where there's just a wonderful focus on how it is that we are to view the possessions that God has given us. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 is one of those. We're going to start by reading verses 3 to 10. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The newspaper, the evening news, the online news article. As you've read those pieces, what examples of sins have you heard about that would probably not have happened had money not been attractive? What bad things would not have happened had money not held such an attraction? Maybe you can think of noteworthy individuals who fell into the sin of greed and then they ended up stealing and then ultimately they were discovered and now someone who was very prominent in society is behind bars because the draw of money and earthly things was so attractive. Maybe you can think about uh, circumstances where a love for earthly things broke up a marriage. Maybe you can think of an event in your own community where someone was embezzling money and in the end they were caught. And now the consequences are huge. Just as we look at the news around us, we can see the powerful pull that money can has, have and how it can lead in so many cases to just really bad, bad places. But can you imagine or just think through even in your own interaction with the world and with money, are, are there times where you yourself have been drawn into a sin to, toward a temptation because money can be very attractive? Have you been willing to, because you really want this something, neglect your family by working longer hours in order to, like, and we wouldn't say that's automatically wrong, right, to, to, uh, to work longer hours, but has the choice been driven by a love for money? Have you struggled with a lack of contentment where it's hard for you to sleep because you're thinking about this earthly thing? Are there temptations that we face because we've put the priority of earning money higher than anything else? And we don't want to say that and we would never want to embrace that, but have you felt that inside? That you're making something more important and it's having an effect. And maybe it's 
making life difficult for you. Maybe you've ended up hurting yourself because there was a part of you that so longed for money. When God talks about this, he talks about love for money being the root of all kinds of evil. And then he talks about these horrible things that happen, uh, wandering from the faith, pierce themselves with many griefs. So if you think about Google Maps, right? You put in a destination in Google Maps, but then there's also like, where are you starting from? And usually it just assumes you're starting from where you are, but you can put in another address and then it will give you directions from that place to wherever you end up. Let, let's imagine that love for money is in the starting address spot. That's where this begins, love for money. And then at the destination are all of these, this dangerous place where all these bad things end up happening. So love for money is the start. Dangerous place is the destination. You know what? Google Maps does, right? It tells you all of the incremental steps that it takes to get from one place to the other. Can you think about that? Like, what are the incremental steps that play out moving from love for money to being in a really bad place, losing faith, piercing oneself with griefs? What happens in between? I'm sure the story can vary. But can love for money end up leading you to decide to neglect other things that you know are right in order to get the money? And then you start losing the relationship that you had at one time with your spouse. And that makes you angry because you think you're justified in what you're doing and the other person is just complaining. And that leads to a big argument. And now your relationship has been challenged and you've been neglecting your children and now you want them to love you, but you are picking up that they're not as affectionate towards you anymore. And that's just one little example. But what sorts of things fill up that gap between love of money and really horrible things? Maybe the key is that these things, the destruction, the broken relationships, the losing your faith, the grief that you bring upon yourself by going into debt and then not being able to pay it back, whatever it is, it always starts small. We might think that love for money is not that big a thing. Like, okay, maybe I struggle with that every once in a while, but it's not that big a thing. And God here is saying in 1 Timothy 6, it is a huge thing. Look what happens. It's a starting point, but it's not the destination, but it leads to the destination. And all of the little steps seem small along the way. But by the time you arrive, and now it's too late, you are regretting. You are regretting ever thinking that money could bring you what you thought it could bring you. The other thing is that if love for money is so serious... What we're picking up on here is that it is thoughts that are properly on our radar screen. We are interested in asking ourselves, what am I thinking right now? Because I know what can happen, right? If love of money is the bad thought, the good thought is contentment, as Paul mentions it. There's another verse 
verses that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, they say this, I know Paul is speaking what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul had his times of, like, things are going really well, and Paul had his times of, he had nothing. Contentment throughout it all, how do you know when you're content? Like, What's your diagnostic tool? What stethoscope do you put to your heart? Or what thermometer do you put to your heart to help you know if you're being content or if you're not content? Maybe it's the way that you react when someone else gets something good. Are you excited for them? Or are you tempted to kind of resent the fact that they can get this and you're not in a position to get this? What are you thinking about? When you go to bed at night, are, is it very hard for you to fall asleep because your mind is on this earthly thing? What about when something bad happens? Do you find yourself, okay, um, but I'm still steady, or do you find yourself when you've lost something or money has gone out of your account that you didn't want to have to spend and it's anger and bitterness and resentment and frustration and right how do we react when something bad happens financially or what about if you were to imagine something really bad happening where you've lost an earthly thing how do you expect that you would react how would you feel We can diagnose our level of contentment by asking ourselves, what would we do if we didn't have what we have? And very often we won't be happy with the diagnosis. And maybe you're thinking, like, how can you ever be content? I feel like I really struggle with that. I really struggle with just being happy no matter what. That is the consequence of having a sinful flesh. Christians, those who love Jesus, still have a sinful flesh. And it is never content. It is always dissatisfied. It is always suggesting you'll be happy if you get this or this or this. And we, we struggle. We sin. Let's find out where Paul takes us next in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 11. So, Love for money ends up bringing all of this grief. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be the honor and might forever. Amen. But you, man of God is how Paul starts out this section. Just from those words, but you, man of God, maybe 
maybe you're thinking, okay, there's something different coming, and that's absolutely true. But think about man of God, person of God, woman of God, man of God. What is that saying? It's saying that you belong to God. You're God's man. You're God's woman. There's a close connection between you and God. And it's certainly appropriate to to recognize that, in fact, you are God's possession. You are God's. He has loved you. He made you his own. And that transforms our sense of what's really going on behind the scenes. We just acknowledge the role that our sinful flesh can play, right? And it gets us to not be content and to be greedy and to covet and to worry and to be, right, all these bad things. Paul in Romans chapter 7 explains the fact that Christians have a sinful flesh. And he doesn't deny it. He doesn't minimize it. It is a wicked thing. But Paul also reminds us that there is something else that is a part of us. It is the new person, that new person that God created when you were brought to faith. In your baptism, when you were made a child of God, there was something new that was created. The new person that loves God, that is excited about his will. So now inside of you, you've got these two things. The person that loves God and then the sinful flesh that hates God. And there is this great battle that's going on. We talked about that, didn't we? That that at the heart of our understanding of God's perfect perspective on possessions is recognizing that there is a battle going on inside of us between the sinful flesh and the new person. And what is God saying when he says, but you, O man of God, God's man, he's saying, you are a child of God. The real you is the new person. That part of you that hates the sinful flesh, that the sinful flesh is an intruder. It is an enemy. Is it within you? Yes, it is. But you hate that part of you. And the real person that is inside of you, the real you, is that which hates sin, that doesn't want to do the wrong thing, that rejoices in the forgiveness we have in Jesus and can't wait to engage in battle against that wicked intruder because you know that you are on the right side, that you have victory guaranteed in Christ. If you look at verses 11 to 16 in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it starts to feel like everything God is saying there is the opposite of what that bad side was where you love money and you plunge yourself into all of this grief and evil and all of the rest. Well, you're absolutely right. What God says next is the opposite of the inclination of our sinful flesh. And it's opposite in so many ways. You might have noticed if you're looking at 1 Timothy 6 that the plunge into ruin and destruction is this thing that like you want to get rich and then you're trapped, you're tricked, you fall into temptation, you plunge, like you're dropping, right? Where it's it's almost like you, you make that first move of loving money and then stuff just starts happening to you and it's all bad. On the side of your new person and what in, in, in Jesus' love you long to do, you're hearing words like, flee from all of that and 
pursue righteousness and fight. And if you're thinking, well, like on the bad side, it seems like this stuff just happens. And on the good side, you are being energetically active. Absolutely. You have put your finger on one of the key heart thoughts of a proper view toward money. Energy, action, running from the evil, running after the good. What you've picked up on is that the new person is excited to actively engage in this battle. Like sometimes you can be fighting a battle and you, like you regret, you resent being in it and you just want to be done with it. And I mean, there's a part of us that can't wait for heaven when we will be done with it. But on the other hand, if you are on the winning side, you know you're on the winning side and victory is yours and you are fighting on the side of God Almighty. To take on the enemy is a joy and a privilege. You fight because you know that you are right. God has blessed you with the perfect perspective. And so this fight is not something we resent. It is something that we eagerly and actively take on because we know that it is the only right way. And what are we to then run after? It talks about righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness that you're thinking, I want to do the right thing here. I am so eager to show gentle, caring love to the people around me. I want to say no to the lie of loving money as if that was the way that true happiness, no way. That is deception. I want to fight for God's design in the peace and joy that is mine because all of my sin has been forgiven. I am on God's side. I'm ready with his help, him working in me to take this on. And, and what does that lead to? We are thinking people. God wants us to think what then as I'm fighting the good fight and standing on the side of God? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Imagine that it is Christmas and you have been given the gift of wealth. So you can't wait, you've opened your package to use what was inside this package and sure enough, this wealth came with operating instructions. So you read them carefully because you don't want to break your wealth. What's on that list of instructions? Well, command those who are rich not to be arrogant, to not look at what you've just been given as something that is to your praise and honor and glory because it was a gift from God. So dear Lord, help me if I am wealthy to not think about the fact that it's to my credit because it's not. Uh, what else? That I am to put my hope in God. So if I have money, I'm not thinking, okay, this is the reason I can feel secure about three months from now because I've got an emergency fund or something. 
that no, my, my confidence about the future rests solely in, in the promises that God has given to me. What's on my list of operating instructions? To be generous and willing to share. That I can't wait to see how what God has given to me is properly used. What blessings can I bring to other people through the wealth that God has given to me? To do good. To be very rich in good deeds. You might, might be thinking, oh, like, wow, if I ever get a gift like that, that okay, now I know the op. You might remember at the very beginning of our conversation together, a number of episodes ago, we talked about how everything belongs to God and how to compare what so many of us have to what so many others have. Like, it's hard to say that you're not rich. To have more than what we need is to be rich. God is giving operating instructions to you. To rejoice in the blessings that he's given you and to hear God say, command those who are rich, you, to be rich in good deeds. There's one other little point here that Paul mentions. He, he says, you put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You know, sometimes when you hear God speak it, it, and, and you're, you're convinced this is a positive thing, but then you wonder, like, is it wrong for me to enjoy something that God has given? Am I supposed to make sure that I've given everything that I have away? Like, where does that... Well, God says that he actually gives you what he's given you for your enjoyment. Like, it's not a question of it being inevitably a sin if you enjoy something God has given. It's just yet another demonstration of his love. He loves you. Now, certainly, in the big picture, we're thinking about, well, what are all the things that God wants me to do with the blessings that he's given? And we've heard a ton of them and how we can use what he's given to be such a blessing. But God also has given what he's given to be a blessing for you in just, like, it's okay to enjoy something physical that God has given to you that you can th say thanks to the Lord for that as well, even as you are so eager to share. And you have opened up this package and it comes with operating instructions and there is nothing that you would rather do than use your wealth to give God glory. Is this a struggle? Is it a fight? Absolutely, because the sinful flesh has a very different idea of what you and I should do with what God has given to us. But we are on the winning side and we have victory, forgiveness of sins in Christ. And he's described for us the perfect way to use this gift. We can't wait to play with our Christmas toy to use God's gift of wealth to serve him in every way. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing clarity to what so often can feel confusing to us. Please help us joyfully use everything that you've given to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.